I'm glad you could join us this morning. My name is Esteban Garcia, and I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's good to see a lot of the college students back, some hopefully back in the next few weeks. Um, So I'm glad that you joined us. And um, if you haven't joined us, I do encourage you that you go back for the past two Sundays. Um, If you've been here, you know um, that it's been good to sit and consider uh, topics that are hard to understand as we consider Luke 21. They're not easy, and yet at the same time, they are important. Uh, they're not the marks of our unity. Okay? They're not the marks of the unity in our church. In other words, there are topics over which we may disagree, even in the church, and that's okay. That's okay. It is actually beautiful to see that in the midst of this agreement, we can come together in the life of the church However, we know that this is not the case for every topic, right? We can't just say every topic is just whatever you want to believe about things. No, the Bible is certain and true about certain things. And there's topics like the one today that we have to agree upon, that we have to agree upon if we want to have unity in the church. Unity and peace in the church only comes about when there's agreement on the things that bring us together in the first place. So the only things that bring us together is the fact that Jesus died to save us from our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. And if we forget that, we will not have true unity in the church. So we have to be able to, uh, we have to be willing to preserve the unity and the beauty of the gospel. So today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians 5.21, and we're going to consider a topic. uh, It's called the penal substitutionary atonement. Okay, what did I just say? Penal substitutionary atonement, P-E-N-A-L, substitutionary, I'm not going to spell that, atonement, okay? I don't really care that much that you, uh, at the end of the day, you uh, can say that and know exactly what it means. I'm not even going for a very precise definition. Um, It would be nice if you, when you hear it, you know more or less what it means. What What I'm going for is the concept. What penal substitutionary atonement means is the fact that we can be reconciled with God because Jesus paid our penalty on the cross, Okay, so what does penal substitutionary atonement mean? Let's take each word at a time. Atonement. Okay, what is atonement? You've, maybe if you've been in church, you've heard this a lot. What is atonement? It deals with how we can be reconciled with God. Okay, so it deals with how our sins are dealt with, how we can be forgiven. Atonement. Okay, your view of atonement will uh, determine what you think Jesus accomplished on the cross. And uh, Scripture argues that on the cross, Jesus paid a penal a penalty. It was a, a penal substitution. He was a, our penal substitution here. And penal, P-N-A-L, refers to punishment. Okay? In this case, it's a punishment that our sins deserve. And lastly, substitutionary. It refers to the fact that Jesus actually took our place. He became our substitute. So in other words, penal substitutionary atonement is the concept that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. I want you to be clear on this and insist on this. Uh, my goal this morning is I actually want you to see that when Jesus died, he actually did pay a penalty. We say this a lot, and you hear this a lot, but I don't want you to take it for granted. Okay, when Jesus died on the cross, his death actually accomplished something for you. Because if you're a Christian, Jesus truly and fully bore the wrath of God on your behalf and fully paid the debt that you owed so I want you, want you to see this, and I want you to believe it. And secondly, I want you to see why this matters. 
why this matters. So I want to prove it to you from Scripture and help you to stand firm in this and to see the beauty of this. So uh, let me pray as we go into our passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your people. We thank you for the unity that you've created in us, Father, and I pray that you would deepen that among us. Lord, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for uh, the great lengths to which you went to save people like us who did not deserve it. Father, we stand in awe as we consider your love for us. Father, I pray for this morning. I pray that you would give us um, eyes to see and minds to understand uh, the things from your word. Uh, Lord, that we would apply them. Lord, I pray for those of us who, uh, maybe this is just a reminder, I pray that it would not just uh, be a time to um, shut down, but instead that this would be a time in which we can ask ourselves, am I living as if this is true of me? Is my life reflective of the fact that Jesus paid the penalty for my sins? And Father, for those of us who maybe this is the first time that we hear this, Father, would you open our eyes to see the beauty of the fact that forgiveness is possible through Jesus, and may we cling to him as our Lord and Savior. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read our passage. We read it just a little bit ago, but 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. One more time. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're only going to talk on mainly this verse, so I want to give you a little bit of context so you're not completely um, out of sorts. The context of this passage is Paul here is talking about believers and how we are a new creation. Okay? Because of Christ, man can actually be reconciled to the Father. So it's very important to know that this passage and the concept that we're talking about is only effective for Christians. If you're in Christ, his death in your place absolves you from penalty, but what does this mean then if you're not a Christian? Well, this means that you're still guilty. Your sins have still not been accounted for. The penalty still stands. You are deserving of punishment. If you're here and you have not trusted in Jesus, you're listening to this. I want this to be an urgent call to you. Jesus died for sinners like you. If you don't believe this, you will perish. The beauty is that if you do, you will be saved. Because it is only in Jesus that you can be reconciled to the Father. You can have peace with God. Because here's the problem for all of us. Every single one of us is under this condemnation. The Bible is clear that we have all sinned. You have sinned. And this is a really, really big deal. Even what you consider to be little sins are a big deal before God. And why? It's because God is holy. He is perfectly pure. He is incapable of sin. He cannot be with sinners. So your first problem is that you cannot be in the presence of God if you're not perfectly righteous. God demands perfect righteousness. Uh, Righteousness above that of the Pharisees before you can come before God. The fact is that none of us are that. God hates sin, and therefore he cannot be with sinners. The second problem, though that's not the only problem we have, as if that was not enough. The second is that God is just. He cannot deny himself. He is the most perfect and righteous judge. And he is not going to leave sin unpunished. Okay? If he did, he would not be a righteous judge because a good judge would not let a murderer get away without a penalty. And because God hates sin, he must punish sin by pouring his wrath. Okay? If he doesn't, he would not be a good judge. Therefore, because you have sinned against the Most High God, 
you deserve a penalty. And the only appropriate penalty for your sins is eternal condemnation from God for you to suffer the full wrath of God. So God has sentenced all of us to that end. And his justice has to be satisfied. So therefore, those two things. You cannot be with God unless you're perfectly righteous and his justice is satisfied. So how does the cross deal with both of those problems? How can we have confidence that we can actually be with God? Penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus in our place. So let's read our passage. We're going to take it little by little and see the beauty of what Christ has done. Start with the first sentence, uh, phrase right there. For what do you add to God? What does he need you for? The answer is he needs you for absolutely nothing. Okay, he does not need you. He doesn't need anything. God is fully sufficient in himself. He doesn't need anything outside of himself. So he doesn't need you. Are you really that important that God needed to save you so you could be on his team? No. Would he be any less glorious if he didn't save you? No, because God has all glory and worth. He didn't have to make you. He didn't have to save you to be all glorious. Now, I just remind you of this because I, you're not going to comprehend this passage in the uh, infinite love of God if you think highly of yourself in a way that you ought not to. Okay? It's only when you see yourself truly for who you are and before God and that the only thing you can bring before him is your sin, that you're an enemy of God. You grieve him. You dishonor him. And yet, as a wretched creature, God makes the greatest display of mercy possible. Why? Not because you're great, because you're not. He did it because he loves you that much. Okay? His love has nothing to do with you. You bring nothing to the equation. You are not someone worthy to be saved. It is God in his perfect and great love. His love has everything to do with God and his mercy. He loves you. Don't forget that, church. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that the God of the universe actually loved you and loves you? Be in awe. Okay? When you think of the cross, don't think of something that's out there that's cold, that's just a theological concept. Okay? I want you to make this a very personal thing because it is. Okay? It is for our sake that God sent Jesus to be made sin on our behalf. Jesus died for you. So I want every time that you think of the gospel, not to think of something that's out there, okay? The fact that Jesus came, died, and rose again is of infinite importance to you. Every day, remember, Jesus died for you. He didn't die for a group of people that he didn't really know. No, he knew you. He knew how badly you would sin, the worst thing you could have done. He knew that you were going to commit it, and yet he still chose you and gave his life so that you could be forgiven and experience a personal relationship with God. That is amazing, and he does it for you. So I want to start with that because that's where the, uh, the verse starts, and I don't want you to forget that. For our sake, secondly, he. Okay? Who's the he? God the Father. Okay? Here I want you to see the mercy of God. Remember, God didn't have to save you. Okay? We have offended God. God fully was, would be righteous in punishing us, and yet the one whom we offended is the one who made um, a way for us to be saved. Okay, he's the one who forgave us. It's an amazing thing that God would show grace to his enemies. The one against whom we sin is the one who extends mercy. Okay, and what does he do? So God the Father, he made. He made. Okay, here what I want you to see is that the Father is at work. He was at work at the cross. He's at work now. God the Father was not passive in your salvation. He made it possible. 
He actively sent his son to live, to die, and to be raised, and he actively poured his wrath upon Jesus. Now, this does not make God a monster, a violent monster. No, in fact, those who call him such should stand in fear because the Bible teaches us that God did this for us. Instead, this shows the infinite love of God to give of himself to save you. So, for our sake, God the Father made him. Him. Who is him? Jesus. Jesus, the one who is fully God, fully man, the fully God, the one who deserves all glory and praise. Even before the cross, he's always been God. Therefore, he deserves the highest place of honor. And yet, we see so that uh, he made him, so him, Jesus, who deserves all glory, he was willing to be sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, but to be sin. Let's focus on that for a second. The perfect, the holy one, was willing to take the sins of his people. Now, let, let, let me make this very clear, okay, because I don't want you to err on this. Um, when Paul here says that the Father made Jesus to sin, we have to consider the next phrase, right? The fact that Jesus knew no sin. So as we consider what it means Jesus to uh, be sin, let's not err in the process. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. So we have to accept that he truly took upon our sins. That he did. He became sin for us. And yet at the same time, we have to agree with the rest of Scripture that Jesus, because he is God, he has never sinned, he could never sin, and he will never sin. Therefore, this passage does not mean that Jesus somehow sinned or became sinful. Instead, Jesus took on our sin without himself becoming sinful. Okay? The unstained and perfect one was willing to take on the filthy, filthy rags of our sin. And because of that, God counted him as sinful. Not account of his own sins, not because of anything that he's done, but because of our sin. And therefore, because he took our sin, he dealt with him as a sinner. Again, not his sin, our sin. Jesus endured the punishment that was due to us, not to himself. And this is where the substitution aspect comes in. Okay? Jesus took your place of condemnation. Jesus became sin. God made him to be sin again. Jesus, who knew no sin. Okay? Throughout Scripture, we know that Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. He was perfect in righteousness. Though he was tempted for 40 days by the devil... He never once sinned. He perfectly obeyed every command of God, something that none of us could do. His act of obedience was a delight to the Father. If you remember at the beginning, I told you, uh, you cannot come to God because you have sinned. You have to be perfectly righteous. You can only come before the Father if you're perfect. And yet Jesus was perfect. He did what you and I could never do. He is the only one who on his own could be with the Father because he is without sin. So, so far we've seen... God the Father, actively working by making Jesus to be sin, though he had never and will never know sin. So quickly, let's contrast this okay, between you and Jesus. How does the Bible describe you? You know sin. Okay? You know it's sin very intimately. This morning, this week, you know sin. You are guilty. You deserve to be punished. And yet at the same time, Jesus, he knew no sin. He was innocent. He doesn't deserve any punishment. And yet Jesus received that punishment that he did not deserve. And that's the beauty of it. That's penal substitutionary atonement. That's what the cross is, the place where he took on our sins and the debt that we owed. And he does this, next phrase, so that, so God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that God did this for a purpose, a very specific purpose. It's a wonderful purpose. 
Jesus doesn't live a perfect life just so we have an example to imitate. He does that, but it's more than that. Okay? He doesn't go to the cross just so that we would know what it means to, uh, self, to be self-sacrificial. No, he does that. He is an example, but he does a lot more than that. What is it that he accomplishes? What's the goal? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What Jesus accomplishes on the cross is the salvation of his people. The salvation of sinners to be forgiven and be made righteous before God so that reconciliation would be possible. Okay, and how? How does he do this? First of all, it's in him. Okay, never forget this. It is in him so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is no other name by which you can be saved. Without Jesus, you will not be saved. If you're listening to this and you have not repented, stop looking anywhere else for forgiveness. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. If you're not in him, you have not been reconciled. Your sins cannot be atoned apart from what Jesus has done. And therefore, in him, we might. Okay, we might. Let me stop just there for a second because I just want to clarify. This might is not a, a uncertainty. Like, oh, you know, in Jesus, maybe I will now receive salvation. There's no uncertainty here, okay? Um, there's no uncertainty with, you, uh, with your walk with God. When God saves you, it is a certain and sure thing. It is effective. So therefore, it's not right for you to doubt this. God in this. God has done this. God is powerful enough to do this. Who are you to doubt him? So the might here is used not to show that God has made, uh, it's actually, well, it is used here to show that God made something possible that was not previously possible. Okay? Uh, what you could not do on your own, God has done for you. Okay? Just as a brief example, let me, um, you know me, you know, and maybe if you've heard me now, my accent, you know that I was not born here in the United States, okay? Uh, I was born in Guatemala, right below Mexico. And uh, when my family came, we came to the States, we didn't know if we were going to be here. For, um, it, it's, it is an uncertain thing sometimes to be in a different, in a different country, especially if you, know, you don't know, are we going to be able to stay? Is it in three years that we're going to have to go back? Is this my home? Is this not my home? And it's like, okay, we got granted three more years to stay. Are we going to be able to stay after that? I'm not sure. Like, there was just a lot of uncertainty. And yet, our family pursued U.S. citizenship so that we might receive the privileges of being a U.S. citizen, right? Now, hear how I used it, right? We pursued citizenship so that we might receive the privileges of being a U.S. citizen. Not because we doubted that when we would become U.S. citizens, we would not be granted those. It's just that it would be possible for us. We pursued that so that would be true of us. Okay, in the same way, I want you to have certainty, okay? I want you to have certainty in your walk with God, okay? If you're in Christ, you have, been, you have become the righteousness of God. This is true, okay? The Spirit of God can actually help you in a way that you live with assurance, not with fear, not with uncertainty. What Christ has done is fully effective. So my desire is that all of us, church, that you would live lives of faith in the fullness of Christ's sacrifice. Not in the uncertainty of your obedience and how well you can keep the commands of God and how well you are obeying and reading your Bible. No, I want you to trust in God. Okay? So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Become the righteousness of God. Now think about that for a second. Again, I just laid out for you our sin and our righteousness before a holy God. And yet, you can become the righteousness of God. Okay, How? You, a wretched sinner, you who can never seem to read your Bible enough, you who can never seem to pray enough, you who can't figure out how to teach your kids with patience, with love, 
You who choose to do what's best for yourself rather than think about others in the church. You who choose to be lazy rather than work hardest unto the Lord. You who care more about what others think than about what God thinks. Or maybe even those of you who are too proud to see your own sin and actually dishonor God in your thoughts. This is you. You can become the righteousness of God. If you're humble and you know your sin, you know how awful it is, how far you deviate from God's command. You know that there's many things that you should not do, that you still do, and the things that you should do, you should do, you just don't want to do. Is this anyone here in the church? I hope you're nodding your head. This is me. This is all of us. This is you. So it's amazing that we could actually become the righteousness of God. We'll see that God declares us righteous, and he is right to do so because of Jesus. So how could this happen? How does Christ crucified actually forgive you from your sins and actually declare you righteous? How could that be? How could God be just and still do this to sinners? Well, it all begins with Jesus taking our place. Okay? He's our substitutionary atonement. Okay? Though he knew no sin, he became sin for you. He took your place by taking your sins upon himself, and therefore, because God has to judge sin, he also, Jesus also took on the punishment of sin, the wrath of God. So we can answer now, the answer to the questions. Why did Jesus die? Okay, some argue that it's because just to be an example for us, and that's all that Jesus did. Well, he does that, but there's more than that. Some argue that Jesus died to be a ransom for our sins, and he does that. Scripture tells us that Jesus was a ransom, but he does that in a very specific way, by paying per penalty. Jesus doesn't just become the victorious one over death. He does that, but he does that in more. He does that in more. On the cross, Jesus served as your penal substitute. Okay. The judgment that the judge had declared upon you, someone else took in your behalf, and that was God himself, Jesus Christ. So when I say penal substitutionary atonement, it means that Jesus on the cross actually received the penalty owed by us, and therefore fully and completely satisfied the wrath of God, making atonement, making forgiveness possible for those who would believe. Now, this, is, this concept is not just a new concept that someone came up with. This is throughout Scripture. It's all been pointing to this. The Old Testament points to this. It's consistent with all of Scripture. I mean, look at the Old Testament. What do we see in the Old Testament, right? We see lots of sin, lots of God's judgment. Sin, punishment, sin, punishment. Bad people getting punished, bad people getting punished. And what was the means that God used to be able to deliver people from that punishment? Okay, they all deserve to die, the person they committed. Um, what, did, what did God have them do? Um, the sacrificial system, right? Sacrifices. So when the people of God sinned, God would command them to take an animal and sacrifice it. And why? What, why? What, what's the point of this? Okay, the animal served to take the punishment of this person uh, served. It's a picture uh, of the fact that I deserved a punishment and the animal is taking it on my behalf. Okay, what did I deserve? Death. What happened to the animal? It died. The animal served as a substitute, practically symbolizing how the animal would take upon the penalty of the offender. So every time you see sacrifice in the Old Testament, think substitute, okay? Substitute. And with that, we have a perfect example, the Passover, the Old Testament, one of the uh, uh, feasts uh, for the Jews that would be celebrated every year. Every year they would remember this. If you remember the Passover, what is the Passover? It's remembering that how God saved the Jews from the Egyptians, okay? It was the 10th. And final plague, if you remember, God has sent plagues upon Egypt to remind them God is powerful. And the tenth and final plague was the death of all firstborns. God was going to judge by killing all of the firstborns. Now, this judgment was upon all firstborns, okay? not just the Egyptian ones. 
And how do I know that? It's because the Jews also had to do something in order to escape this punishment. God gave them something that they needed to do. Blood needed to be shed in order for um, the destroyer to pass over them. Okay? So um, let me just quickly read from Exodus 12, 21 to 23. Just listen to me as I read from uh, the scripture. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So what happened to the Passover lamb? It received the penalty due to every firstborn, death. God called his people to make a sacrifice for their deliverance. God judged all firstborns to die, and yet atonement allowed the firstborns to be set free from death because the sacrifice had already been paid. Now, all of this is temporary, right? The Old Testament was temporary. This is the sacrificial system. We don't sacrifice animals anymore. Why? Why don't we do that? It's because it was temporary. It was to point to a greater and better, more full atonement. In the New Testament, we have the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Passover lamb. Jesus Christ, the one who takes our sins away. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he does this by acting as the sacrificial lamb who bears the penalty for our sins. The one and done satisfaction for the awful punishment you deserved. Now, two more verses. If this still is not clear to you, how did God actually take on a punishment? Let me read you two more verses uh, from the New Testament. 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay? Jesus took on your sins and its punishment, and by his wounds, you have been healed. And then uh, one of the most important ones on this topic, Isaiah 53, 4-6. Okay? Make sure you have this um, clear and remember this. This would be a good uh, verse to memorize. Isaiah 53, 4-6, and it reads, Surely he has borne our griefs. This is of Jesus, talking of Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgression. Again, here, taking our punishment, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So why did Jesus die? You know this. To pay the penalty for our sins. Teach your kids this. How could God then forgive sinners without compromising his holiness and justice through Jesus Christ by becoming our substitute? The wonderful thing is that when Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just... Um, take away your sins. No, he, he actually made you. God is declaring you righteous because Jesus' righteousness has been imputed to you. He's been given to you. The one who perfectly obeyed, actively obeyed God in every way, his righteousness is now counted upon you if you have believed in Jesus Christ. When the Father sees you, he doesn't see all of your sins. He sees the righteousness of Christ that is not yours by yourself. It is because of Christ has given it to you in his love. Jesus, you have been declared righteous, completely righteous by the holy judge. And Jesus, his justice was fully satisfied. Therefore, church, you can now come before God. 
So we see that penal substitutionary atonement is biblical. It's true. And now I want you to see the wonderful truth why this matters, okay? So why, why does it matter? Why, why should we insist the fact that Jesus paid a penalty? Like, what? Like, does it actually really matter? Am I just arguing over words? It matters so much. And the first thing I want you to see is that it matters because the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without a sacrifice that actually deals with punishment, okay, what deals with your punishment, there is no remission of sins. If Jesus had not taken your punishment, your punishment would still be standing upon you. The Father would not be just to just forget about your sins and just call it a day. No. In fact, Romans 3.23-26 tells us that Jesus' death um, makes God both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. God can still be just because the punishment has been dealt with. Jesus upholds his God's justice through his sacrifice, removing your sins away and clothing you with his righteousness instead. So penal substitutionary atonement matters greatly because it means that your punishment has been taken away forever. You do not live under condemnation, eternal condemnation anymore. Your debt, church, has been paid. So brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ, you are forgiven. Okay? The great land to which Jesus went to take upon his shoulders and deal with your sins is fully effective for you. There's nothing else that you need to do. Therefore, I want you to live free. I want you to live free. You don't have to pay for your sins. You don't have to punish yourself for the, things that, for the sins that you commit. If you have believed that Jesus truly and finally dealt with your sin, what could you possibly add by yourself? Okay? Any efforts at appeasing your conscience that are self-centered, are dishonoring the fullness of Christ's sacrifice. Your sins in the past, the present, and the future have been completely absolved in Jesus. There is no condemnation for you. Walk not as condemned people, but as forgiven people. Live free, church. Live free. Free not to sin, but to Christ. Free to trust that your sins are paid. So that instead of trusting your ability to make yourself feel a little bit better because you're um, you know, doing something about your sins, instead, Trust in the blood of Jesus who gave all of himself so that you could be free to walk and live for him. God does not want you to walk in fear and condemnation. In fact, God wants you to enjoy fellowship with him. You will to enjoy him, to delight in him. He delights in you. You can come before him as a loving father, and you can experience his forgiveness when you sin, his comfort when you're down. And all this is possible because there is no longer eternal punishment upon you. Okay? So church, a few things. I want you to be free. Free from the power of sin. Okay? You no longer need to live as if you're slaves to sin. You don't have to live satisfying the flesh as if that's going to give you life and peace because it won't. You're not a slave to sin. You are now a slave to Christ. You're free to do as God calls you to do without shame, but instead with full confidence. Secondly, be free. Be free not to disregard your elders, but free to hear correction and heed it. And do it with delight because God himself delights not in sacrifice but in a contrite heart. So be free to hear correction. Free your brothers and sisters. Let them pour into you. Okay? You are free to hear their correction and to heed to it. Thirdly, be free. Be free not to neglect your responsibilities, uh, but instead with joy serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Your responsibilities now don't earn you any mirror before God. You're doing it out of love for what he's done for you. So be free to do your responsibilities faithfully. You're also free to forgive. You're free to forgive even those who have hurt you greatly. 
Because as you think of how much you've been forgiven, you can also extend forgiveness against those who have hurt you. You're also free to think more highly of your brothers and sisters. Okay? You're free to think highly of your spouse, of your children. You can actually experience peace, fellowship, peace. Why? It's because um, you, know, you don't have to feel as if you have to patrol everyone's actions. You're not responsible to hold everyone accountable for every single thing that they do. That's not how God acts with you. Okay? You are free to trust in what God has done. Church, you're free to live for God. Not worrying about others, what others say, or maybe their judgment upon you on what, what, they, how, what they think about your faithfulness. Rather, they can, uh, the only thing that matters is that God has declared you righteous. And lastly, you're free. You're free when God calls you home. Okay? You're, you're free to face death. You're free to face uncertainty without fear because you know that you've been redeemed and you've been given the most important gift that matters. So, church, be amazed. Be amazed. Let the gospel actually have an impact on your life. Be amazed by God's great love for you. And think highly. Think highly of what Christ has done. And worry less and less and less about what you can do. So instead, cling to him as your only hope for your sins to be washed away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for this truth. We give you all the thanks, Lord, we we want to be people who honor you and as we meditate upon who you are, the fact that you serve all glory, and not just that, but you would show love to us, Lord, as um, wretched people. Lord, we, Lord, help us just to be in awe and to stand amazed. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we take this for granted. Forgive us for the ways in which we think of the gospel um, not as something that truly applies to us. Help us, Lord, to believe that your um, death, Jesus, on the cross fully paid the penalty for all of our sins. Father, help us to trust this, to walk in faith, to be free, Lord, to live for you. I just pray that this would be true of our church, Father, and this would um, impact every single relationship that we have in every area of our life so that we would be able to live a life that are pleasing to you. So we pray for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.